All right, we're going to look tonight at a passage that is one of the most challenging, I think, that you'll find in your entire Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, this is called the Death Valley of the New Testament. I've had on multiple occasions uh, Christians come up to me, Pastor Scott, I got a question. And I love that. I love that, by the way, when people come up and say, hey, I just have a question. What do you think about that? And so we'll talk and they'll start off and they'll say, I've been reading in Hebrews and I know exactly where we're going. We're going to chapter six. That's, that's where they're going to have trouble. And so we're going to look at this passage tonight. It's going to be a total of 12 verses, but the crux of it what people really struggle with is between verses 4 and 6. And so let's begin by just reading those verses. And so I want to do something different tonight. Would you stand with me right now? And I'm going to read this. We're going to have this on the screen. And you can read along where you are. Uh, you know, you can read all that if you want. You don't have to, though. But here we go. The author says in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Well, now, who's he describing right there? It sounds a lot like Christians, just on the surface. And then in verse 6, uh, he said this is impossible for these folks that then have fallen away, uh-oh, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Okay, be seated. As we have looked at that together, I think you can understand why this is such a difficult passage. As you read that, maybe the question that pops into your mind is, does this refer to Christians that fall away, i.e., that lose their salvation. Is that what this is talking about, that they walk away from their faith? I mean, if I am of the persuasion as an evangelical believer that I, I subscribe to once saved, always saved, and I read this, if this does, in fact, refer to Christians, then maybe I shouldn't respond, uh, uh, subscribe to once saved, always saved. Maybe I should subscribe to once lost, always lost. So what is this talking about? This concept is what we're talking about today. We're, we're looking at this phrase, falling away or having fallen away. That is what the Bible calls apostasy. Apostasy. And this is a timely text given events in recent history. There have been, over the last few years, some figures in, in Christian circles, in, in the public eye, who have made some unsettling statements. And one such guy is a, a pastor, former pastor, an author by the name of Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris. I remember Joshua Harris' first book. He wrote a runaway bestseller. It became very popular when I was a college student at Liberty University, and it was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And the premise of this book was that uh, Christian singles ought to just kind of dispense with the notion of traditional dating and adhere more to the concept of biblical courtship and just, just not have to be uh, in, in a dating relationship of any kind. And as a single young man, I didn't like this book. 
because it was a big hit with all the girls on our campus. It wasn't that I disagreed with the content. And as an older man now, as a father of, of teenagers, I, I see a lot of merit to some of these concepts. But when I was in my 20s and I was single and lonely, I didn't like this because I would ask a girl out on campus there at Liberty and she would say, oh, I'm so sorry, thank you for asking, but I've kissed dating goodbye. At least that's what she told me. You understand. And so I struggled with this. Nonetheless, after he wrote this hit, he went on. This guy, Joshua Harris, became a pastor at a mega church, became rather influential in many circles. And then one day, about four years ago, Joshua Harris announced via social media that not only had he and his wife, uh, who was the mother of his three children, not only had they divorced, uh, but he made the following statement. He said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. He said, the popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have, he said, for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. So he makes this statement. People are blown away. They're flabbergasted. A lot of people were influenced by him. And it was only a short time later, another guy in Christian circles, a worship leader, a songwriter named Marty Sampson with Hillsong United, who had written many of the songs that I, I especially like, he came out with a statement on social media. He said, I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. And these are what has come to be called deconversion stories. They say they have left the faith. They have deconverted. And this is what I want to address tonight because this is still going on. These are just a few examples. There are many others. There are podcasters. There are authors. There are, there are even pastors. There are musicians. There are writers. And they have stepped away from Christianity after becoming cemented in those circles. And Christians are wondering, what gives? What's going on here? What's happening exactly? Have these people lost their salvation? Were they ever saved to begin with? Can they come back to believe? Could it be that they're still saved, but they're just going through a difficult time? They're working through something? And I would say the best way that I know how to analyze this is through the lens of Scripture. And the thing about Scripture is, you don't just read it like a textbook. Only the Spirit-filled Christian can read it and understand it because we're going to need that Spirit right now. But that's what I want to do, and that is what has led us tonight to Hebrews 6. So why don't we pray? Because we're going to need the Lord's help on this one, huh? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing as we open your Word, God, which, which is not something to study analytically or with mere human intuition or knowledge, God. We come looking for a Spirit-to-Spirit -spirit interaction, God. We pray that you through the Spirit indwelling us, will allow us to perceive and interpret what you have supernaturally delivered via your sacred text, the Holy Bible, God, the Scriptures. And we pray for uh, an illumination here tonight, uh, an awareness of what you want to say on this matter in one of the most challenging texts in all of your Bible. And we pray your blessing upon us all. In Jesus' name, amen. So the overarching question that we're asking tonight in your notes, does Hebrews 6 describe those who lose their Christian faith? I want to say this text at a minimum describes people who have at least been a part of Christian community, church culture, and they have now publicly departed from it. And there are going to be four things that I'm going to show you, four things that we need to understand 
from this text tonight. And the first thing in your notes, we must understand the offense of those who fall away. What is the offense in question? Uh, what is the name of the book that we're reading? I, I taught on this once and I asked that question, what's the name of the book that we're reading? Somebody said, the Bible. Well, you're not wrong, but specifically we're looking at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. Uh, who is being addressed here? It's a group of Jewish Christians. They are Hebrews. And uh, the author, who by the way we don't know, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Personally, I gravitate toward the Apostle Paul. It's just my opinion. It's not really all that important. But whoever the author is, he has observed this community of Jewish believers over a period of time. And while they have a Christian culture, while they have some new traditions and unifying language, this author has not seen an, an overwhelming shift collectively in their belief and in their actions. In short, they look an awful lot like the Jews of the Old Testament. And so the author begins to address them. And so we look at verse 1, and he says to them, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That's what you call a command. This is not a suggestion. He is, he is instructing them in what they must do. And what he's saying is we must leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, what is that? These are the basic teachings about Jesus. Okay, the Christ. Uh, to the Jew, the word Christ has special significance. It means the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a messianic term. And so the Jews throughout the Bible have had deep, deep misunderstandings as to what the Messiah is, what the Messiah would come to do. And here we see some of those misunderstandings perhaps having a half-life within this Jewish Christian community right here. And so there is some vestiges of the old ways, the old lines of thought that they can't let go of some of their assumptions about what God wants. And that's why if you go back one chapter in Hebrews to chapter 5, verse 12, the author says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says you need milk, not solid food. And he's saying, I, I, I should by now be serving up some nice ribeye for you that you should be working on. You should be challenged by what I'm uh, uh, giving you. But yet you, you, I'm still having to feed you with a bottle. You know, when you learned to read, you didn't start out with an encyclopedia. You started out with some baby books, you know, some C. Dick and Jane. Anybody remember? Is that too old to remember? You remember C. Dick and Jane? My kids had something called the Bob books, you know. And you get through that stuff and you move on to something more challenging. Well, these cannot get past, you know, Curious George. They just can't. And so the author here is saying, we need to, to refresh you. You need to get your head around this. And so he proceeds to remind them about these elementary doctrines of Christ. And he does so moving forward. He says, we got to go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of and he proceeds to list six things. And what he does here is he lays forth the, the basic components of the gospel in these verses right here. And I want to kind of go through them one by one. He says, we're not laying again a foundation. The first phrase is of repentance from dead works. Okay? And so that is the first component of the elementary doctrine of Christ. There are six components to the elementary doctrine of Christ. And the first one is salvation is not by human works. 
He says, we're not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works. You're not saved by your good deeds. You're not saved by your ritualism. All that is dead. It's got no use. It's like filthy rags. It's a basic lesson in the Old Testament. If anybody thinks that the Old Testament is about works and the New Testament is about grace, you didn't get the Old Testament. You didn't understand. The Old Testament was there to show you it's not about works. There ain't nothing you can do to earn God's favor through works. The law was never intended to save, and even if it was, you couldn't keep it if you tried. It's impossible. So you, you just need to repent of that idea if you think that you're saved by works. The second component in your notes is salvation is by faith alone. Basic stuff. Every Christian ought to know this. He says that phrase, uh, we're not laying a foundation and a, uh, of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Salvation is by faith alone. You're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. Uh, in Genesis 15, Abraham was justified. He, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith. What does it say in uh, Hebrews? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you're justified by faith alone. The third component is salvation results in forgiveness. He says uh, this bit about instruction about washings. What, what does that refer to, washings? Well, in the Old Testament, the priest had to be ritually cleansed before he could perform any priestly duties. He had to go through a cleansing ritual. So as a believer, we look at that and we understand what that symbolizes. It symbolizes forgiveness. So salvation results in forgiveness, okay? Uh, when we stand clean before God, that means that we are forgiven. We are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, we're also not laying a foundation of the laying on of hands, which is the fourth component in your notes, that salvation involves, and here's a big word, the imputation of sin and righteousness. What is that talking about? Well, the Jew actually understands this concept, the laying on of hands. Whenever a priest would perform a sacrifice, he would take a spotless lamb, he would put his hands on that animal, and he would pray, and the sins of the nation symbolically would be transferred to this spotless, perfect lamb. As he prays, laying hands on that animal, and as that animal is led away to be sacrificed, as its blood is shed, symbolically, the righteousness of that sacrifice is applied to the nation. And so we know as Christians what that symbolizes. We look at the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. What would he do? He would go to the cross. That would be the place of atonement, the sacrifice, one time for everyone. And our sin was imputed to Christ on that cross. And he literally, and he died, a substitute in our place. And as he shed his blood, that sacrifice, that righteousness by faith is applied to you and I, you see. And so he also mentions this phrase, the resurrection of the dead. And that's component number five in your notes, that salvation results in resurrection. That's a basic truth. When you were saved, not only were you raised spiritually, but uh, one day you will literally be raised. You will physically be raised. Anybody looking forward to that? A resurrection, going to have a brand new body? Some of you are like, I'm ready for that right now. Raise me right now. Change me right now, you know. I, I can share this wonderful truth at every funeral that I officiate in. You know, I heard the other day a heartbreaking story of a young mother who, who tragically died, an accident at home. And when, when that happens to a believer, this is the great hope that we have, that that is not the end, that there is one day to be a resurrection from the dead. 
and we will see them again. That's not just a New Testament idea. I'm here to tell you in the Old Testament, book of Job, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so we see this concept. So all of these Jewish believers, these are evident to them, not just from the New Testament writings, which are not even complete at this point, but from the Old Testament writings. All these concepts are present. And then the author says this closing phrase in that verse, an eternal judgment. We're not laying a foundation, once again, of eternal judgment, which is this component. In your notes, number six, salvation removes God's wrath from you. Without acceptance of everything that we've talked about, there is an eternal judgment, you see. Because when you are raised, what you escape is the wrath of God. You must receive all these basic elementary doctrines, these components of salvation. If you do not, judgment is upon you. God's wrath is upon you. There is an eternity apart from Christ, and we call that hell. Basic, basic stuff. This is the gospel right here. And as the principles for the gospel, the the, the author is saying this is apparent to you. This should be apparent to you. And it's time to move on from this. So what is their offense? It's this in your notes. They ultimately reject a gospel that saves. They ultimately reject a gospel that saves. The gospel that they are, many of them, in effect embracing is a gospel that's based not on faith, but on works. They're falling back into the old Judaistic thinking, which is, which is in error because the law was never intended to save. And so they're falling into their, their assumption about what the law does, that they're going to earn the favor of God. So they're importing a warped view of the law and of earning favor. Now, you may be out there, you may be thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. I don't have that background, Pastor Scott, so this isn't a problem for me. I'm not going to fall back into that. Maybe not. But there are many in Christian culture who say they're not deconverting. They're not renouncing their faith per se, but they do struggle with some of these concepts. Maybe you're not, you know, falling into Judaistic thinking, but you, you, you might be uncomfortable with some of the things that I've described, some of those ideas. There is a movement afoot that I have talked about in here before when we did our Hot Potato series last year called Progressive Christianity. And there are people who are not deconverting, but they're unsettled by some of these elementary ideas, and so they are deconstructing. They are revising. They are assimilating them to a modern sensibility, something more palatable, because they're offended at the straight interpretation of them. Let's go back through them one by one, and we'll see what the progressive reaction to them is. So when you say that salvation is not by human works, the progressive mind says, that's offensive, because you're ignoring the great potential of humanity. You're ignoring the fact that man is basically good. You know, the example of Christ is for us to work harder, to be better, to work toward a better world. And, and salvation really is, is a metaphor for, for our best life now. You see? Uh, when you say that salvation is by faith alone, they say, well, that's offensive because that's, that's exclusivity. You're saying that there's only one way. How narrow-minded. I mean, how arrogant for you to say that there's only one way. Why, you're ignoring all of the wonderful, well-intentioned, sincere people around the world. Who are you to judge, you see? 
Let's be more inclusive. When you say that salvation results in forgiveness, well, that's offensive because that implies there's something wrong with me. You're saying God hates sin, but you're saying that I am inherently sinful. Well, that means that God hates me. I'm not going to accept that. I reject that notion, they say. That's manipulative, you know. When you say that salvation involves the imputation of sin and righteousness, well, that's offensive because really what you're talking about is this idea called the atonement where Christ got on a cross and he paid a price and he, you know, God demanded the shedding of blood. What kind of bloodthirsty God are we serving here? And he would demand that of his own son? What kind of cosmic child abuser are we choosing to worship here? How narcissistic. You know, and when you say that salvation results in the resurrection, well, that's offensive, the progressive says, because it, it ignores the real focus of the gospel. You're looking toward, toward a resurrection. You're looking toward heaven. Well, you think heaven is a, is a real place? No, heaven's a metaphor for uh, the, the best that life can be on planet Earth. We need to strive toward, toward how man treats his fellow man with love and respect and create the best life we can here in how we relate to one another. And when you say that salvation removes God's wrath from you, why, that's offensive because, uh, the, you know, this view of hell, that hell is just something that man concocted to try to control people, to try to manipulate people with guilt and with fear. It has no basis in reality, they say. Hell is, is war. Hell is uh, uh, injustice, you see, poverty. All of the things that we chain ourselves with when we don't do what Christ modeled, you see. And this is the progressive mindset. You say, is that really being taught in churches? You better believe it. You better believe it. See, you don't need to renounce Christ outright to apostatize, to fall away. A lot of apostates still claim the name of Christ. They, they might call themselves a Christian. They might call themselves a Christ follower. But it's, it's twisting and misrepresenting these essential gospel truths. And in so doing, you are rejecting the Jesus of Scripture, who is the Jesus of reality. And you're creating something palatable, something comfortable, something that adheres to modern sensibilities. And in doing so, you might call yourself a Christian, but you are just as apostate in the eyes of God as the person who says, there is no God. And so we need to understand that offense. We need to understand that. The second thing in your notes is we must understand the identity of those who fall away. Who is the author of Hebrews talking about here? Well, how does he describe these people? We, we move on. Look at verse 3. He says, and this we will do if God permits... What does that mean? This we will do. Well, what did he just say? He says, let us move on from the elementary doctrines of Christ toward maturity. Okay? We got to move on toward maturity. What is that called when we become more mature in our faith? We call that discipleship. And that is our mission at the Lamb's Chapel. It's in our mission statement. We're here about reaching, raising, and releasing undeniable followers of Jesus. That's our mission, becoming a disciple. So this we will do, if God permits, which implies that he might not permit someone to move on toward maturity. What kind of person would God not permit to move on toward maturity? Well, he wouldn't permit that if they have not embraced the true gospel. 
You can't mature in something that you have not embraced. And so we've got a process here called next steps. Some of you have done next steps. Some of you are in next steps right now. Uh, It's basically a launch pad toward discipleship. It just kind of gets you on track. And by the way, I think everybody ought to do it. It's not for baby Christians. It's for Christians of all ages and all, uh, all phases of life, spiritually speaking. And one of the things that you learn in there, which is good for us all to refresh, is an articulation of the gospel. Because you can't become a disciple unless you understand and respond to the gospel. And so, are we talking about Christians in terms of falling away? No. No, that's not what's being referred to. Oh, but Pastor Scott, did you, look how they're described. And we, we will look at that. Look at verse 4. We already read this. It says, for it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Yes, that is all very spiritual sounding language. But I'm here to tell you, despite the language being used, these are not believers. They're not believers. In your notes, they have professed faith, but they have never possessed faith. They've, pos- they've professed it, but they haven't possessed it. These are non-believers that externally, they look the part. They've made a profession of faith. They could probably give you a day and date on that. They um, have a sterling church attendance record. All right, they've, they've been in Bible study after Bible study. Maybe they've even led one or two. They might have greeted you at the door when you came in. They might have handed you a Bible at one point. They might know all the lyrics to these worship songs that we've just sung tonight. They might be able to quote chapter and verse, but the authenticity is missing in their life. It's all been a charade. It's all been an outward zeal that was really rooted in something else, rooted in emotion, rooted in intellect, rooted in experience. But it's not legit, and it's not personal. And eventually they return to a former way of thinking, an old way of life, and they're what eventually what they become what the Bible calls an apostate. Such a person was never saved. They were never saved. They don't go from saving knowledge of Christ to unbelief. They were never born again to begin with. That's who we're talking about right here. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It was never real. When the Joshua Harris news broke I think I posted this verse and I made a statement, no one ever walked away from authentic saving faith, ever. And that little post, that's all it was, but that post got a lot of reaction, a lot of likes, and the creative team at my church, they said, hey, would you be willing to do a short video? We'd like to put out a video on this. Maybe you could speak to that. And I did. It was a very short thing, but I quoted this verse once again. You should have seen the comments on that video. Negative Oh my gosh, just hundreds and hundreds of comments by people incensed that I would dare propose that somebody who walked away was never truly born again. People would say, how pathetic, how typical. I'm so sick of Christians trying to rationalize why some leave the faith. One guy said this, he says, how dare you? How dare you? I was a sincere born again Christian and I left the faith. 
How dare you say, I was never really saved? I'm, I'm fascinated by that. That intrigues me. Honestly, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, the people who renounce a faith as untrue are offended that you would dare imply that they were never really a true Christian. I mean, if, it was, if they're so adamant that they were truly born again, why'd they leave it in the first place? I don't, and by the way, don't get mad at me. Get mad at John. I didn't write John, uh, 1 John 1, uh, 2, 20, two, what is it? 219. How do we know that the people described here are non-believers? I know how this language sounds. Does it sound on the surface like a believer? Yeah, it does. But the author is, what he's doing, if you, if you look carefully, he's taking us right up to the brink. He's taking us right up to the point of authentic belief, and he stops just short. There's no language here that is unique to the born-again Christian. There's no language that is exclusive to authentic believers. If, he, if the author wanted to make it a slam dunk, these are born-again believers, he could use the phrase born again. It's biblical. He could say, you know, it's impossible uh, in the case of those who are born again, who are blood-bought, who are baptized in the Spirit, who are justified, who are declared righteous, who are saved, who are reconciled to God, who are made holy. I mean, there's any number of phrases that he could use, something like that, but here's what we get instead. We get, in the case of those who have been enlightened, enlightened, Greek word is fotizo. You know what it means? It means they've, restri- they've received instruction. Instruction about what? About salvation. They've been told how to be saved. They've heard the truth. That's intellectual, you see. They've understood it. He says they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Greek word is geomai, okay? Which means to perceive the flavor of something. To taste it. They haven't consumed it. They haven't ingested it. They've just tasted it, you see. Uh... It says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. They haven't been baptized. They haven't been regenerated. They haven't been filled. They haven't been dwelled. They're not empowered by the Spirit. They've simply shared in the Spirit. Uh, One version says they've, they've, they've been partakers in. They've dabbled in it. They've been surrounded. They've been immersed in a culture that speaks of these things. I assure you there are people that go to the Lamb's Chapel that fit this category. They have not yet bought in. They have not yet received Christ. They're just in the, the community. They're running in circles. They're in the environment. They know all the words. They know how to look the part. They know how to sound the part. Uh, the Greek word for shared is metokos, which, by the way, you never see after this incident right here. It's purely experiential. It's a close encounter. It's a brush. It's a brush with Christ. Now, this brush might last several years in the case of some, but it's never been a real relationship. Years ago, I was in Kansas City. I was staying at a hotel. Just so happened uh, the, the New York Yankees were in town. They were there to play the Royals. I actually went to one of the games. And so I was in this hotel, and the Yankees were staying in the same hotel. And I was on the elevator, and I went down a floor, and the doors opened, and it was just me on the elevator, and then in walks Don Mattingly. Now, I don't know if you know who Don Mattingly was. I collected baseball cards as a kid. I had a lot of Don Mattingly cards. He was a big star when I was, you know, following baseball when I was younger. A big slugger for the Yanks. And uh, I, I saw him. I recognized him immediately. And I'm just standing there. I'm just, I'm just looking at him. And I go, 
you're Don Mattingly. And he looks over, he goes, how you doing? And we shook hands and he stared straight ahead and I just looked at him. You know, the whole elevator ride down. And then we get down to his stop, doors open, and he walks out, and I just kind of watch him go. And then the door's shut. That was my stop. I never got off. You know, now, I could mischaracterize that whole exchange, you know, to you. I could have just said, you know, I remember <laughs> when Don Mattingly and I were together in Kansas City years ago. Don said the funniest thing on the elevator. <laughs> Classic Don. You know, I could, I could say that, but that wouldn't present the real picture. You know? Do, do, are Don Mattingly and I in relationship right now? No. Now, we could have got off that elevator at the same time if I'd have been paying attention, and we could have continued talking, and maybe we could have chuckled over something together. And at first glance, somebody might see us together and think, well, they know each other. But we don't. I mean, years later, Don Mattingly is not going to run into me and go, hey, elevator guy. No, he doesn't know me from a hoot owl, all right? And so it's the same thing here. One day, you're going to have people standing before Christ in judgment, and, and they're going to have run in all these circles. They'll, they will have had the appearance of relationship with him, and they're going to say, Lord, we did this, we did this, we did this. He's going to look at them, and he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That is the most terrifying verse in all the Bible. You don't want to hear those words. And one day, people will hear those words. I never knew you. And this is hard for people to understand because everybody, I bet everybody here knows somebody who was so authentic at one point. Oh, they were so sincere. They were solid church folks. I mean, they did such good things. And then they walked away. And this is why people think you can lose your salvation. They know somebody who was devout. And they just walked away. And they think about their friends and they say, you know, I just can't believe that it was never real. I just, I, I, I can't get my head around that. And they look at Joshua Harris and they think, but he was a pastor. I, I, I read his book. It impacted me, you know. And listen, I don't know Joshua Harris's heart. I don't. God looks on the inside. Man looks on the outside. All I can do is take him at his word and pray for him. That's all I can do. I don't know if what he said four years ago was literally how he felt or if he's just going through a tough time. Maybe he's dealing with some family issues and he can't articulate where he's at in his crisis of belief. Maybe, maybe it's a stumbling season and he's going to find his way back uh, to what he really, really believes in his heart of heart. I don't know. Here's what I want to tell you. Profession is meaningless. Experience is meaningless. I don't care how authentic someone might seem if they apostatize. Was Judas... The real deal at some point? Was Judas ever authentic? I mean, he was in ministry. Three years in ministry. He preached. I guarantee you that. He participated in miracles with the other disciples. Uh, he walked with Jesus physically in person every day for three years. Was he the real deal? Some might say, well, maybe at some point he was. Nope. Nope. How do you know, Pastor Scott? Because Jesus said so. 
He told the disciples well before his betrayal, he said, one of you is a devil. And the verse says he was talking about Judas Iscariot. Folks, if Jesus says you're a devil, you ain't saved, dude. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But listen, true believers don't apostatize. They do not. And remember, you don't have to renounce Christ to fall away. This community being addressed, this is a religious community. You understand, no one in this community is saying, I renounce Christ. No one is saying, I disavow God. They're not saying that. What have they been doing? In your notes, they have attempted to merge old thinking with new Christian culture. You can't do that. They're dredging up this old philosophy of works-based uh, salvation. Uh, it's, a, it's a misinterpretation of the law, and they're trying to force the law into Jesus. You can't do it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, it's like putting new wine in old wine skins. New wine symbolizes the new covenant, grace. Old wine skins symbolizes the old covenant of the law. What happens when you put new wine into old wine skins? Those old wine skins are already stretched to capacity. You put new wine in, in the fermentation process, they expand. What happens? The old wine skins rip open. Now you got ruined wine on the ground, you got ruined wine skins. It doesn't work. Law doesn't work. Grace doesn't work when you try to merge them. Cultural Christians do the exact same thing. They take the idea of Christ, the idea of mercy, the idea of grace and love, and they try to pour him in to modern social constructs of worldly thinking, and it changes the gospel. It makes it a social gospel. It makes it a moral gospel. It makes it a prosperity gospel or some other man-made concept that we slap Jesus' name on. We call it Christianity. And those who follow those philosophies that are not the true gospel are not born again. And the third thing we need to understand, we need to understand the warning to those who fall away. Something is impossible. What's impossible? It's impossible for these people who have heard these things, have learned these things, understand these things. It says in verse 6 that if they have fallen away, it's impossible to do what? To restore them again to repentance. Now, here's where this passage kicks it up a notch in difficulty because of that word again. See, sometimes uh, people will hear that word again and they'll say, whoa, whoa, aha, see? To restore them again to repentance. That means they repented before. You said that they're not saved, but if they've repented before, how, how could they not be saved if they've repented before? Is all repentance authentic repentance? Does the Bible talk about true repentance? It does. True repentance leads to salvation. You know what that says? That there's such a thing as false repentance insincere repentance. It's what 2 Corinthians 5 calls worldly sorrow as opposed to godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is an emotional, guilt-oriented response. Does it lead to salvation? No. It leads to guilt. It leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to, is true repentance and it leads to salvation. It leads to belief. False repentance is all over the Bible. Esau repented. Uh... Judas exhibited sorrow after the betrayal of Jesus. What did Judas do? He ran and found those Jewish elites that had paid him 30 pieces of silver. He tried to give the money back. That was, that was an act of repentance. Some versions even say Judas repented. 
Did it lead to redemption? No, because it wasn't authentic. It wasn't true. And what we need to understand for the people in this state, in your notes, is that there is no hope for those who remain in their unbelief. As long as you're in this state, there can be no true repentance because you're hardened. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Uh, this is saying that if you remain in this state of rejection, there will be no repentance because you're, you're hardened to it. And as we go back to Hebrews 11, verse, or not 11, but Hebrews uh, 6, verse 6, he continues, he says, Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. They're crucifying him again. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, when those sacrifices were offered, they happened again and again and again and again and again. You had to keep doing it. Because it was a picture. Let me ask you, did any of the blood from those countless lambs that were sacrificed, did any of it atone for a single human being's sin? Not one drop. It was all a picture. It was all a symbol. It pointed ahead. And so people would look at those sacrifices in faith, in expectation of the one who was to come whom John the Baptist said is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, who would do the same thing on Calvary, but it would atone for all. And those who come by faith, we need no more sacrifice, just Christ. And so when you lump Jesus in with all these different gospels, with all these different ideologies and philosophies and worldly belief systems, you're, you're, you're just, it's, it's like you're saying, well, it's just one more meaningless sacrifice. It means nothing. We're just crucifying him over and over and over and over. And it has no impact because it's not genuine faith. Verse 7, it says, For land has drunk the rain that often falls on it, produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You know, the earth fulfills what it's designed to do when the rain falls on it. When we get a good rain, what are the farmers hoping for? Green vegetation, fruit being produced, crops, trees, right? The rain is a blessing, right? But what, what happens when there's a field and it rains and rains and rains and no crops are ever produced? It just is barren. Eventually, what, is, what does the farmer have to do to that field? He burns it. He starts all over. And the unbeliever, the life of the unbeliever, it produces no fruit because there's no genuine faith. There's no true repentance there. And what awaits the life of the unbeliever in eternity, it's to be burned. That's hard to hear, isn't it? You might say, you know, Pastor Scott, I got a loved one that was raised in church and they've, they've fallen away. They've left are you telling me there's no hope for them? Are you telling me they can't be brought back? God has, has seen them to cross some invisible line known but to him and he's cut them off? You're telling me it's hopeless? That is not the thinking that we are to engage in. It's really not for you and I to engage in that. That is not the practical thing intended for us by God. Let me give you a glimmer of hope, okay? The verse we read says they are near to being cursed. They're near to being cursed. Has the curse been delivered yet? It has not, but it's near. And so 
there's a thin line here separating dire warning from foregone conclusion. And this is a dire warning, but it is a severe warning. 2 Peter 2.20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. This is saying that if you know the truth and you have rejected that truth, you are worse off than if you'd never heard the truth at all. Why would that be? Why are they worse off? Because they're closer to judgment than they've ever been. It's not that they're further from salvation. It's that they're closer to judgment than they've ever been. A friend of mine helped me process this. He said, it's like if you're on the open sea and you're, you're, you're just treading water and you're out there and you need help and the Coast Guard comes along and you wave them off. Never mind! Um. I'll figure it out. Thanks anyway. I mean, are you definitely going to drown now? Well, not necessarily, but you just waved off the Coast Guard. You are closer to drowning than you've ever been. And if you don't change your mindset about your situation and your need, you are definitely going to drown. Now, I don't want any Christian here saying, well, if, if there's a time when God just gives them over, and I do believe Romans 1 teaches that. But I don't think it's for any of us to conclude when that is for somebody. I don't want anybody thinking, well, I've been witnessing to that guy. He used to be in the church. He's not anymore. He's rejected the faith. And I've been trying to pull him back. And he's rejected me over and over and over. You know what? I'm done. I'm just going to consider him, you know, kindling at this point. God's probably given up on him, so I'm going to give up on him. You don't get to do that. That is not for you to do. Your job is to keep praying, keep trusting, keep persuading. As long as you draw breath and they draw breath, that's your job. I've talked about D.L. Moody in here, great evangelist. He had a famous holy hit list, 100 names that he prayed for, for years, that they would come to faith in Christ. And by the time of his death, 97 of them had come to faith. But the best ending of that, but the ending of that story is that at D.L. Moody's funeral, the remaining three names, those people showed up, they heard the gospel, they all gave their lives to Jesus. It ain't over till it's over. Amen? All right, let's end on a good note. You want some good news? Number four, we must understand the promise to those in Christ. I love that word, promise. So we pick it up in verse 9. It says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You see what's happened here? The pronouns have shifted. For those who have heard and received and tasted and been enlightened, if they fall away, so you got those and they, now it's you and your. He's speaking to the contingency of this community that is authentically born again. And he is confident about their eternity. He is, he is not leaving it up to chance. He's not saying it's possible we'll see you in heaven. We don't know. It looks good, but, you know, keep working at it. Uh-uh. He is confident. 
He is sure. How can he be so sure? It says in verse 10, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. They're sticking with the stuff. Their faith is not merely fire insurance. That's not genuine saving faith. James tells us faith without works is dead. Your faith is evidenced by your life. Your works don't save you, but as Ephesians says, you are saved to do works. And so a, a, a marker of your authentic faith that saves is a life of serving Christ. And this author sees that in them. They're sticking with it. So here's the promise in your notes. Those who are saved can never be lost. Those who are saved can never be lost. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Christ. Here's what Jesus says in John 6, 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Is that good to hear? I will never cast out. And this, drop down to verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. I should lose none, some versions say, of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. In John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life. What kind of life? Eternal, is it five-year life? Ten-year life? Life until I screw up? No, it's eternal life. What does eternal mean? It means forever. When do you get it? When you die? When you trust Christ. When you receive his spirit. He didn't give, if you could lose your salvation, he didn't give you eternal life. If you could lose it, it's not eternal life. Because if you're a Christian, you're sitting here today, you have eternal life presently. It's not something future, it's now. And he goes on, he says, and they will never perish. Eternal means forever, never means never. They will never, they will never, they will never perish. And no one, you, you like these, there's finality in these terms. No one will snatch them out of my hand, all right? Picture Christ's hand, you're in there. Amen. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So I want you to picture the hand of Christ. You are in his grip, secure, impenetrably, and then the Father's hand is around his hand. Is there anything getting through that? No, no one snatched it. Now, I've, heard, I've had people come up to me, you know, I hear what you're saying, Pastor Scott, but hear me out. No one can snatch me out of the Lord's hand. But I could jump out. And then they just kind of... They're just kind of like very pleased with themselves, like they dropped the mic on it or something. I'm like, that's the best you got, really. So Satan is not powerful enough to wrest you from the grip of Christ, but little old you can wiggle loose. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No. No, no. The Holy Spirit that indwells you, Scripture says, is the earnest or the guarantee of our salvation. That's Ephesians 1.14. He is the earnest. What happens to earnest money? We've talked about this. If you don't show up on closing day, your earnest money, bye-bye. Who is the earnest money for your soul? The Holy Spirit. Oh, you know, the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, 
is, is God going to forfeit part of himself to Satan? No, no. John 5, 24, it's not on the screen, but it's worth noting. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has it. I love this. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is past tense. It has already occurred. At the moment of salvation, you've crossed over. You don't cross back. You've passed from death to life. And we wrap this up, verse 11, we begin to, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full, I'd underline this word, assurance. Assurance of hope until the end. See, God wants you to be sure of your salvation. This is not merely the fact of your eternal security. This is about assurance of that salvation. God wants you to know that you know that you know that you know that you belong to him. You ought to know it. You ought not wonder about it. You ought not just hope for it. He wants you to know it. Why? Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's the the promise. Here's Here's what assurance does. In your notes, assurance empowers faithfulness. When you know to whom you belong, you can be who you are intended to be. you got to know whose you are. Who is it that reminds us of our identity? If you know this is your identity, you're going to walk in that identity. You're not going to try to be something you might not be. You know who you are. And you live according to that. And who is it that constantly reminds you of who you are? Romans 8, 16, one of my favorite verses. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He testifies it to us on a daily basis. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine. Walk in your identity because you belong to me. And the only way to be assured of this promise, last thought here, in your notes, is to trust in Jesus Christ who died in your place, who rose again for your forgiveness and your eternal life. Have you made that decision today? Amen. Let's bow. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the promise of Scripture, God. We claim so many promises. It's shocking to me sometimes that Christians would not want to claim the promise of our security in you. And I don't, I don't think that, that believing somehow that they could lose their salvation necessarily is, is, is a sign that they don't really know you, but it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy because they're not experiencing the fullness of the joy of knowing you. That you have paid it all. And that by faith they come to you, God. We didn't come earning anything. There's nothing that we could do to earn your salvation. There's nothing we could do to lose your salvation because we are kept by your spirit. Your spirit is a seal on us for the day of redemption, which is yet future, God. And you have put your mark on us and there is no authority that could break that seal because it comes from you. And no one is higher than you, least of all me. And so I'm grateful 
for what you have claimed in your word, the assurance that we can have. And we praise you. I pray that everyone in this room would go in the fullness of that knowledge today, that they would walk with boldness and confidence and assurance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.